You're listening to The Hoof of the Horse, a podcast dedicated to farriery and equine science with Dr. Simon Curtis. Today's podcast episode is sponsored by the Hoof Care Essentials Foundation and their partners, Save Edge. My guest today is Bruce MacDonald, longtime New Zealand farrier. I visited New Zealand last August. I left a hot North European summer to go down to the Southern Hemisphere uh, to enjoy their winter. New Zealand in the winter is rainy and warm and I've never seen so much green. It's truly verdant. Anyway, Bruce MacDonald hosted me for the whole of my tour uh, and he was doing that on behalf of the New Zealand Master Farriers Association. We toured the north of the island. I did a number of clinics for farriers uh, and for barefooters. And all the time that we toured, and we basically went round the whole of the North Island, uh, it was non-stop cattle and sheep country. But of course there are um, lots of horses there as well in New Zealand. And I visited stud farms around Cambridge, which is where I gave one of my clinics. And I also visited Ryan Harris Hayes with Bruce. And Ryan's podcast is already out, so I hope you've listened to that. You know, Bruce was such a great host and character. He was full of anecdotes and wisdom, and he kept me amused the whole time I was in New Zealand. I hope some of that comes over to you, the listener. But anyway, let's have a a listen to the podcast that I did with Bruce MacDonald. I'm in the North Island of New Zealand, and I've spent four days in the company of Bruce MacDonald. We have just crossed the Paraparas, which is uh, a range of hills uh, with windy roads and wonderful cattle country. It's as green as green, and one of the main reasons for that is it's never stopped raining. But it's a very mild climate, and we've come down to Palmerston North, which is about a third of the way down the North Island uh, because I'm doing a clinic tomorrow so I couldn't miss the opportunity to have a chat with Bruce. Good evening Bruce. Good evening. So now you descended from a Scottish family and I think the name Bruce MacDonald slightly gives that away. Whereabouts were they in Scotland? My uh, great-grandfather and grandfather um, farmed on the Isle of Battersea um, in the Outer Hebrides and then my great-grandfather died just before the First World War and my grandfather got gassed and shell-shocked in France and was eventually sent to New Zealand for the better climate. Um, on my mother's side, they were um, from East Coast on Gisborne. My great-grandfather was a cobbler. My great-great-grandfather on my grandfather's side was a trader. Okay, and uh, Gisborne's... The other side of the island, but North Island? Yeah, yeah, on the North Island, um, on the East Coast. Okay. So your your family were farmers, were they? On my father's side, um, yes, they were farmers. Okay. So they came here and farmed? Uh, my grandfather farmed, and then my father was shepherding all his life. Shepherding? Mm. Okay. And and the other thing, though you said I didn't see that many all I saw was sheep all day long when I wasn't looking at sheep I was looking at cattle out of the out of the truck window oh yes yes yeah well we're in the 
harder cattle in sheep country. Um, <laughs> the thing we, that we, got we, me was the we, cattle halfway up the hills, almost on cliffs. They, um, they act like mountain goats, the cattle here. Well, we, we left Cambridge um, this morning, and yeah. that's dairy country, and then as we came down, yeah. we're more into sheep and beef country yeah. um, because of the, the hills, basically. Yeah. Hills, some of them are like cliffs, as I say. Anyway, it was most impressive and, and so beautiful, and everybody knows, uh, everybody's told how beautiful New Zealand is, and I can only confirm it. So, how did you get into shoeing horses then? Um, I was brought up on a farm, and it was just a every six weeks the farrier came around and he shod about 12 horses on the farm that I was brought up on, and then the neighbours from each side had come across, so the, the two farriers had been there all day. And we only had horses in those days. We didn't have motorbikes, and we only went to town about once every three months, six months, or whatever. So horses were always part of my life, and it was just something that appealed to me, and I wanted to, wanted to do it. So how did you get your training? Unfortunately, when I was ready to go into an apprenticeship, motorbikes became very popular on farms, which meant that all the farriers that normally would take on someone didn't have enough work for themselves because all the horses were sent to the back paddock and everybody rode motorbikes. So I had to wait till I was about 20. When I was in Dannyburg, which is not far from where we are now, a mate of mine who I, I met was a farrier and I used to go out with him and started learning there. Okay. And then um, as we got along a bit, I started going to competitions and yeah, one thing led to another and then I went to Flockhouse, which was um, an agricultural training college where the New Zealand Farriers Association had a school there. And I did a um, second year block course there and, and away we went. And what year was that? Uh, oh gosh, time of that was... <laughs> well, if you were... Probably twins... about... Um, no, by the time I went to Flockhouse, I was probably... It was 10 years later, maybe. So um, end of the 70s? Yeah, or? about then, yes. Oh, well, that was good. So you so you didn't actually get any sort of formal training for the I, first I 10 years of your career? Apart from the Flock House, which was run um, by the Paris Association, the rest of my education came from my friend and competing. Okay. So you were shoeing in the early 70s. Yes. And there were factory-made shoes, but you had to learn to make shoes yourself. Yeah. Where I was working out of Dannyburg, well, even in Central Hawks Bay and all that, all hind shoes had to be healed because the customers at the time decided if it didn't have heels on, the horse was going to fall over on the hills and um, they might die. The, well, the rider, well, the, not, the rider, yes. not the horse, no. <laughs> uh, the horse was quite happy. Um, so anyway, yeah. I decided that because of the fact that I was going to competitions and I enjoyed them and I wanted to learn, and I needed to put heels on shoes, I might as well make the whole thing. So I started manufacturing everything I put on. And, and I didn't stop until I shifted up to Auckland because people up north didn't require heels, so, and there was a lot more horses to shoe. So, so you're saying every horse you showed, you put heels on? Every horse. Every dressage horse, every show jumper, every farm hack, every polo pony had heels on. They all had heels. Yep. Well, that's probably the only place in the world I can imagine that there was 100% of horses in heels. I know if, if you look, if you find old shoes, um, but that would more be for banners and farm horses, yeah, they all had heels in the UK, but, mm. but certainly the, uh, the ridden horses wouldn't tend to, but here, 
Or in this area of New Zealand, they did? In that stage, in, in that area, yes. Okay. Um, I've been in Auckland now for 30 odd years. I believe now that the horse rider is not so concerned about horses slipping over and killing them. They do manage to fit a few flat shoes in the area now. Yeah, but they have, no doubt they have screwing studs then, don't they? Um, well, they might have, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so what type of horses were, were you doing? You were working on, you were shoeing working farm horses, were you? In those days, you didn't have a dedicated sports horse. Um, everything was a working horse, which you rode during the week, and you took hunting in the weekend, or you went down to the local sports meeting and did show jumping. Maybe the odd woman had a dedicated dressage horse, but there wasn't a lot of those around in those days. Um, so basically, they were all farm horses, working horses. And were you riding at the time? Uh, yes, I used to do a little bit of riding. Competitively? Uh, mainly trekking. How is trekking competitive? No, it's not. <laughs> well, it did. Yeah. <laughs> how far you can go, is it? <laughs> I, I lived out the coast for a while and it was just a matter of just roaming around the countryside enjoying the views and um, one thing or another. Okay. Now, I heard that you got into shearing sheep. Why did you have to go and shear sheep? Well, being raised on a farm, as a young boy, you learn these skills. Um, you know, you start with a bit of crutching and, and dagging and then you move on. It just out of... I didn't ask what crutching is. Yeah, it was taking the, um, the wool off the bum of a sheep for um, reasons unknown at this point. Um, <laughs> so anyhow, when we were in um, Danny Burke in, in sort of the early 80s, Rogernomics era, there was a big upheaval in the farming situation and a lot of farm staff got laid off, which meant they, the horses weren't being ridden, so they didn't need to be shod. Um, I need another line of revenue to keep myself alive, basically. So shearing was one of the options. Fencing was another one. It was just whatever was going, you'd have to wait the, the downturn for three or four years, two years, depends on how it worked, and then you'd be away shearing again. So it was, it was a bit up and down. And it was a bit, but even when you were shearing, did you ever keep a few that you were shearing? We always did, because the weather was never that great, uh, great where I was, so you always had a couple of days' rain at a time. The one thing you could rely about over in um, Dannybrook Way was if it got up in the morning, it was raining, it was still raining the next morning. Yeah. Um, so it never disappointed you. It just rained for two days at a time, so you could pop out and... Sure, a few horses in a shed under the um, microcarpentry was always the best place. See, I like the fact that so you're shoeing horses, which is renowned for giving us back problems. So when you have to get out of shoeing, you go and do some shearing, which is renowned for giving back problems. So, you, how good is your back? No, it's been good, yep. Yeah, because well, you're, you know, you're, I'm 66 and I'm still shoeing, so you are, and not, not a lot, but you know. Yeah, but you're, you're, you're obviously your back has maintained uh, some health. And, and yes, yes, yes. Good. And I can put that down to maybe genetics or just good luck, I don't know. Yeah, well, I'm sure it's a bit of both, really, maybe. 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 So, yeah, so you moved up north. Um, yes, we moved up the north Auckland, about um, 27 years ago. Yeah, and, and why did you move up north? Because of the fluctuations in the um, rural income, because where I was in... Southern Hawke's Bay was very reliant on, on farmers' income. It was, it was a rural-based town. Uh, because of the farmers' um, income fluctuating and their ability to spend the money, life was a bit perilous. 
sometimes you'd make money one year and other years you'd be scratching to make a living, you know. So I looked it up and looked up at Auckland and there didn't appear to be any farms up there of any consequence. And I had heard that there was horses everywhere. Yeah. So I loaded my truck up. Well, first of all, I went to the bank and increased my overdraft, loaded my truck up with shoes and nails and stock that I had and waved the family goodbye and headed up there. And it was just amazing. I just didn't didn't stop. It was just horses everywhere. Okay, so New Zealand is renowned for this wonderful climate, but that doesn't mean it doesn't differ from south to north. And even on the North Island, as Auckland, it had an appeal to you from the climatic point of view as well, didn't it? When I moved up there to Auckland, um, I realised I'd been cold for 40 years down, <laughs> down south here. The climate up there is just amazing. It doesn't blow, it doesn't rain, and it never gets cold. It might rain five times a day, but it doesn't rain five days in a row. So it was, it was a much better um, system. Yeah, well, we, we, when we lived down south, of course, and it was cold and windy and wet, we just thought everybody enjoyed the same weather. It wasn't until I moved up there that I found out that we didn't have to do that, you know. Well, I start this trip up in Auckland with you, and I'm actually looking forward to finishing it up there because it's been a bit wet and cool. And we're, of course, because we're Southern Hemisphere and it, it's early August, this is, should we say, the low, low point of winter, isn't it? Yeah. This is our. August, September is our, our winter months. Yeah. And, they and that's when I chose to come over. Here. Yeah, they overflow a lot more down as you go down the island than they do up north. Now, I think you had a dabble at being a, both a cattle farmer and a sheep farmer. How did that come about? It was always the plan to retire on a small block of land um, that was self-sufficient. So that was the big plan. The opportunity came up to lease some land, which we took. And we went up 350 acres. We only owned 30 of it, but we leased the rest of it. I think the most numbers we got up to was 85 breeding cows and 150 sheep. That was sort of, in theory, to take the pressure off the having to shoe so many horses. And uh, did, did you achieve that? No, 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 no. <laughs> no, but everything doesn't, never goes according to plan in life. <laughs> <laughs> so I went up shoeing horses to keep 85 cows and 150 sheep alive <laughs> because of um, a drought and uh, American what the Americans were doing um, with their beef affects our beef trade. And But anyhow, it was enjoyable. You got through it? Uh, yes, and I walked a lot of miles and did a lot of worry and every now and again we made a little bit of money, but yeah, that was good. So you've shod heavy horses, I believe, and I think... I think you told me you've shot, you shot at one point for two breweries. Yes, at one point I was doing the Lion Brewery Shires. Well, they were the ex-Lion Brewery Shires at the time. And then um, I shot the DB Clydesdales. And then, of course, when you start things like that, there's always the uh, wraparound people that have one or two. So you, you wind up doing them too. So, so, so the fact that you were doing the brewery horses meant that people approached you to shoe their heavy horses? There wasn't a lot of competition to fight for the heavy horses. Yeah. Um, most guys, in those days, we couldn't buy shoes, so they all had to be handmade. And so in conjunction with my mate, he would make the shoes and I would put them on and we used the experience as a um, bit of a practice for competitions, mm -hmm. um, which we you did You said right. the breweries didn't pay well. 
No, the brewery's paid very. We always oh. got paid quite well. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think in the UK there's only three breweries now that keep horses, obviously for promotional reasons. Uh, and I know there's a couple of the farriers that do them, but is there any breweries left in New Zealand that use? No, not horses? that I know of. No. Um, apparently, there was a change of management with DB, and the younger manager decided that um, the DB Clydesdales, which was for Dominion Breweries, mm-hmm. they just had a change of direction of, of their marketing and that. Um, their teamster, Nick Vandersant, carried on. He's only just recently got out of them. Um, he was trading under Prongia. Clydesdales, uh, doing wagon rides and and shows and that. So we, we carried on chewing for him for a while, but as far as I know, there's no other breweries that yeah, are doing it. Yeah, it's a pity, isn't it? It's, and, it's a shame. It's happening all over the world. And, yeah, uh, yes. Um, you know, a lot of the breweries used to support the heavy horses, and there's but, great publicity for them. Well, for years, Clydesdale horses was associated to DB breweries. Yeah. People just thought that way because they did when they were promoting them. They they did a great job. They went all around the country and really pushed it, and it, it became a sort of a trademark for them. But it is a shame they let it go. But that's business, I suppose. The modern world. Yes. But you got into competitions, and Fair. did you get into competitions yeah. via the heavy horses, or was that? No, 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 no. I was well, I was well into into competitions before that. Yeah. I've always been quite competitive, and early on when I was learning the trade. Uh, my friend took me to competition and it just looked like the thing to do um, and I enjoyed it for 40 something years and it's taken me around a bit and yes I'll, well I think you've, you've been certainly to the big ones really you've yeah, been to yes, Calgary yes and you've been to Stoneley in England I went to Calgary three times yeah and I managed the New Zealand team to Stoneley I we used to go to Australia a couple of times a year at least plus do the five or six competitions in New Zealand. I would urge anybody who is in the trade, who wants to learn more, competitions are the way to go. Yeah. You're, you were talking to maybe 20, 15, 20 of the better farriers in the country, um, and if you've got a little problem or you need um, advice, these are the guys that'll give it to you, uh, because they've all been in the situation that you're in when you first start, and appreciate what what it's done for them and so they just pass on the knowledge it's a it's a great learning curve and i know you said to me today that you had an old mate and you hadn't seen him for 15 years because he stopped competing yeah yeah that was right yep yeah so, so that just shows so, you so you were at your clinic and he was there and yeah it was good to see him too and well you just have to have me do more clinics and then your your social life will improve again yeah. Bruce. well no doubt no doubt <laughs> So you managed the uh, New Zealand team at Stoneley. Yes. And I think, is there talk now there's going to be an Australasian team that's going to go back to Stoneley? Over this year, or this year coming, we've been given permission from the governing body over there. The powers that be? Eh? The powers that be? The powers that be that we can amalgamate if we need to send a combined team of Australian New Zealand various. Yeah. Um, And this, of course, makes it more available. Yeah. And we're very pleased they've done it because Stoneley is the um, sort of the highlight, I think, of the um, a competition calendar. Yeah, and, and sadly Calgary's gone, which so, for the, yes. the individual competition was the tops. And now, yeah, Stoneley, shall we say, is um, carrying the torch. Yes. 
And, and I, I'm glad they did that because, of course, um, there used to be a North American team which was combining USA and Canada. So I think there's an, it's not unreasonable, especially how far you've got to go, that you combine New well, Zealand I mean, it, and Our isolation is, is the problem. I mean, you can't get any further away from England than New Zealand. You know, and every year people can't afford to go. So, but if you can amalgamate the two, two countries... You know, out, out of Australia and New Zealand, you probably get a team going every year. Yeah, well, I, and, well, I, I hope so. And experiences like that, they bring back the, the new skills and the, and the enthusiasm, and, and it rubs off all the way down. Um, even guys that don't go to competitions because they're working in the same area as somebody who does, there's a rub off. Yeah. So I think competitions are very valuable to the industry, um, and I'd like to see everybody at least just turn up. You don't have to compete, just turn up and yeah. rub shoulders and you'll, you'll learn something. So now you're off to Ecker at the end of next week. Yes. Can you tell our listeners what on earth Ecker is? Ecker is a um, colloquial term for the Queensland Royal Show that's held in Brisbane every year. We presume, and guessing at this, but it stands for exhibition, <laughs> E-K-K-A. You sort it out. Well, I, I know that there's this, there's this little bit of rivalry between New Zealand and Australia and, and the number of, of, of Kiwis that have said to me, that's typical of the Aussies, they shorten everything. Apparently, but anyhow. <laughs> Apparently. We, right. um, I mean, we, we just call it Ecker because they call it Ecker. And, yeah. yeah uh, but it's, it's a great show. Well, I'm I've been going for about 20 years and yeah. um, we have our little routine. We stay in the um, apartments next door to the Breakfast Creek Hotel, yeah. uh, which serves wonderful food and wonderful beer and wine and so just a short well, stroll across I've the road. Well, I've got a serious job. I'm, I'm judging, so, so I'm probably going to join you for breakfast, but I not, might not be joining you for the beer. But oh, well, can... we'll just wait and see what happens, Simon. Yeah, okay, see what happens. okay, okay. All right. A moment of weakness might come in. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're a great supporter of the New Zealand Farriers Association. Why do you think the Farrier Associations are so important? Um, you need an industry voice in any industry. So we're representing our members, paid-up members, but we also include our non-financial members as part of the whole industry. You need adequate representation, I think, yeah. in, um, in any industry. You know, one voice alone won't do anything, but if you're speaking for a whole heap of guys, you have a, yeah. a little bit of clout, and it's all about industry protection, and, um, you know, you just never know what's around the corner of what's happened, and groups are always a lot stronger than individuals. Yeah, I mean, governments um, and bureaucrats do not listen to an individual, do they? Individuals the first don't, thing individuals don't exist. Yeah. What's one vote? We've also joined forces with the um, Australians in, a, in an association, uh, mainly for information sharing about competitions and events and clinics and all that, but it also just to join up, have a, a bigger say in what might or might not come about. How long has that been going? We were approached to, uh, last year, year before, to join. Um, Dean Lewis from Melbourne was a big... Um, yeah, pusher. I know Dean very yes, well. and um, he could see what was happening, and yeah. we just backed him full, full built, and yeah. 
And you taking the opportunity at Ecker to have a meeting? We have a meeting at Ecker. Um, okay. So we basically, as I said, it's an information sharing yeah. um, system. And most of us go to Ecker because we enjoy Ecker and, and so it's an ideal time to have a meeting. Yeah. And hopefully in, in the future we can develop a more organisational role for education and things like that. Uh, is the long-term plan, you know, if it all goes well. Well, I admire the fact here that the association here, when there's not a formal school for farriers, has taken on the mantle of ensuring that there's training from all the way back when you were trying to upskill to today. They, they are still doing it, aren't they? Both, yes. both uh, giving courses to, to young farriers uh, and also um, accrediting them. Um, well, we, we obviously do apprentices. Um, we have a school in Wellington, um, but we also do self-employed farriers who want to upskill yeah. and get their qualification. That's an important part of the industry because apprenticeships are getting harder and harder to get for young young people, mainly due to the financial liabilities to employ anybody. Uh, you have a month's holiday. You have 11 days stats, you have 5 days sick, you, you have, have insurance, you have, you, you, you have yeah. pregnancy, I know, um, parenting leave and all this stuff if it's needed. So it, it makes it quite difficult for somebody to train an apprentice. So a lot of people go out and start in the industry and then seek their own formal training. Um, and so we try and provide that in part of the apprenticeship scheme. Yeah, now that, that's excellent. Now I have to ask you, uh, a question which I call a deep philosophical question. Don't look quite so worried, Bruce. What do you think is the most important thing you've learned in life? It is quite a philo- <laughs> philosophical. Is philosophical the word. is the word of all. The most important thing in life. Um, just do what makes you happy. There you go. Well, that's a quick answer and uh, that's a, if you, a very if, good if you, answer. If you're not happy, don't do it. Okay. It's dead simple. Well, that's, that's great. And um, um, I, I just, I mean, we've already half discussed this, but um, my final question is, uh, where do you think the industry's going here in New Zealand? I can see the industry growing. Now, it's not going to be easy to grow it because of what we're just discussing, the inability for people to train apprentices, but our ability to travel and to compete, um, and we've got young parents going overseas, to work overseas and bringing their experience home, I can see the industry getting stronger and stronger. We're getting more and more pleasure horses and there's more and more money being spent on them and the customers are starting to demand a better standard of work and skill. We're trying to work a lot more with vets and other professionals in that area. Um, so I think it can only go from strength to strength as people become more educated and more professional along the line. Well, you're a very positive person, and that's a positive end to our conversation. So I reckon it's time we went and had a beer, don't you? I think so. It's getting well, late. Well, <laughs> thank you so much, but Thank Bruce. you, Bruce. It's wonderful. Well, that was the interview with Bruce MacDonald. And we covered quite a lot. I hope his character came over to you. Uh, He's been around showing even longer than me. And he tells the tale of when motorbikes replaced horses, just as he got showing. 
Um, but he also tells us about how you find education in a country uh, which doesn't have a Farriery school. And that's really a lesson for all of us uh, with thoughts on continuing education, even if we have had a Farrier school education. He was well into, and still even when I visited into competitions, he no longer competes himself, but he has helped to manage the New Zealand team and he makes a regular trip across to Australia. And for those of you who think that New Zealand and Australia are next to each other, there's a two and a half hour flight just to Sydney. He, he talks about the style of shoeing that uh, that they had in New Zealand where every single horse was shod with heels in other words corkins or corks whatever you want to call them and he also covered the risks of a farrier using his hard-earned cash to build another business now I'm always on to farriers that they should look to the future we can't shoe horses forever and they should invest their money uh, so that they have an, uh, an additional stream of income but there's a lesson there to all of us that that might be a good idea, but where it goes wrong, it, it's not a lot of help for our future. And we covered so much more. So I hope you get as much out of this interview as I did. He's a wonderful character, and I can only say just how grateful I was for him uh, showing me around New Zealand and looking after me for a whole week. We'd like to thank Hoofcare Essentials Foundation and their partners for sponsoring this episode. You can find out more information at hoofcareessentials.com. You can follow more of Simon's work on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Simon Curtis. To get in contact, please email thehoofofthehorse at gmail.com. And for everything else, go to drsimoncurtis.com. Thanks for listening.